0: Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Chris McIntosh, the expert when it comes to all things macro, but especially the commodity space. So we're going to get into that right now because as you guys know, I'm very bullish on commodities long-term. I think we're in a commodity super cycle, but it's a matter of, you know, how's this going to play out in 2023 with what the yield curve is telling us? And we've got this recession that's coming our way and how that impact commodity prices. We just had OPEC+. Plus come out yesterday they said they're going to cut by a million barrels a day and how does this impact the oil price therefore consumer price inflation how does this impact what the fed is going to do chris is going to answer all those questions for you and more right now on this live stream (laughs) so chris welcome to the show my brother so what do you think man what's going on with macro
1: this is look here's the thing um this is now an evident war, right? It's been a it's been a financial war for some time, and now it's just much, it's much more transparent. And ultimately, when you go through history, what all or, what ordinarily happens is you have these sort of it's like a tit for tat, right? It's like a bunch of goons in the pub, and they're like you know. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? And then there's, then they start pushing each other and shoving. And you know, at some point, someone's going to throw a punch. You know, it's going to be a right hook or a left hook. And you don't know if it's one or the other. Maybe somebody throws a chair. But then it's all chaos and it's all off. And I think we're moving rapidly towards that kinetic outcome. And I think that's going to have a, a material impact on multiple um, asset classes. Um, you know, The kinetic, I mean, you at, think
0: that's going to be between US and WHO? Russia, China?
1: I you know, it's funny. I was listening to Ed Dowd. Um, and Ed Dowd, I just watched a short clip that um, that he had. And one of the things that he just mentioned, and I was like, damn, you're so right. He said, we're going to have a war. And and the interviewer was asking him and said, you know, between who and what? And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, all wars are bankers' wars. We're going to have a war. And because of financial strife. And basically is what is what you have is with a collapsing empire, and one which is financially strained, you have multiple options in front of you as you move through the situation, you can utilize your economic prowess um, to to influence outcomes, shall we say? Mm -hmm. We've seen that. We've seen that with respect to sanctions, we've seen that with respect to trade embargoes, all of those sort of little, shall we call them diplomatic tools. And then, and then it moves into um the more kinetic, right? So and that that just firstly that's actually been utilized now, I think to its full extremities. The sanctioning of Russian or the freezing, stealing, whatever you will, of Russian assets was was I when that when that took place, I said that was a tool that you use once. You only get to use it once. And it needs to be extraordinarily effective because it's not so much whether you defeat Russia or whether you succeed with that particular tool, it's the message that you've sent to the rest of the world by using that tool. Right, right. right. And, and that has deep and lasting repercussions. <clears throat> and so um, that was the, that was, I would say, almost like the apex of the financial war. And now we're moving more into a kinetic war. And, and again, when you've got a collapsing empire, um, you have the economic prowess or some variation of it. And then the other is military, right? Diplomatic channels have already been put to the side because they haven't been, you know, effective. So it's diplomacy, then it's financial war. And then ultimately it's a kinetic war. And so, um, because what, have, what is it that you have left? Well, you have left a, a giant military. And we know now that, well, many of us have known it for some time, but it's become much more evident that the actual government the people that you see standing up on podiums are not the people in charge the deep state has much much more leverage and power than many people are willing to accept or even understand and the deep state needs a war and the deep state um, profits immensely from war and so if I look for example pull up European defense stocks you could look at um u.s defense stocks which have done shit from 20 to even sort of 2018-19 they started rallying um, and we we pointed it out we we suggested that we were not going to participate largely because i have a moral backbone and i don't wish to fund something that i don't agree with but nevertheless so you've had you have had u.s defense stocks doing extraordinarily well and over the last 18 24 months european defense stocks have been massively outperforming US, U.S. defense stocks. And what it tells me is that they're stocking up. So if you look at all of the military hardware, they've been just pouring it into Ukraine um, along with personnel, you know, send them into the meat grinder and now they're, they're um, gearing up um, for, for the next leg of some description. How that takes place, I'm not sure it matters. We could argue whether it's an escalation of a nato actually going into um across crossing borders into russia or something of that description that would be true yeah,
0: because now finland's part of the club too huh
1: finland's part of the club i mean is that look they have kept crossing um multiple um red lines yeah. that that russia has put in place they've said this you know this is a red line and they've just kept crossing them but then the other thing that you're noticing is that there is a there's a fairly distinctive shift towards Asia, which is also deeply worrying. And good old Victoria Newland even came out saying that we are good. Um, I'm trying to think of what her words were, but it was along the lines of in order to fight China and defend Taiwan, we would be utilizing our allies. In other words, another proxy war where we'd be utilizing satellite um, peripheral states to go in and do the dirty work. Because the reality is that there's very little domestic support amongst the U.S. citizenry for any wars mm-hmm. uh, to send um, men into the field. So it would it would be a deeply unpopular war. It would be Vietnam at scale, I think, to send in U.S. Um, personnel at scale into either Ukraine or into Taiwan or any of these places. So this proxy not- wars, to proxy wars, and so they're left with the um they're, they're left with the need to have a war they've got tons of military hardware they can send in and then they're going to utilize um so-called allies I think that's sort of probably well that's that's the probability of outcomes based on the rhetoric that is being
0: put forward do you but think that OPEC worried. deal was to send a message or what do you think the
1: well OPEC's the rationale probably, behind that was yeah Yeah, it's a good question. OPEC is part and parcel of this. If you go back and you look at what what was um, called the Mackinder Doctrine, right, which is also known as the heartland um, theory, and this has been at the heart of U.S. foreign policy for decades and decades now, and it's very simply, I'll I'll bastardize it to some extent, but in order to keep it fairly short and um, understandable, the heartland theory (coughs) is that the eurasian area so this is middle east um russia included and europe whoever controls that economically politically militarily controls the world right because it has the highest amount of um, population in the world highest um typical gdp as aggregate Mm. and it also has all of the um, the trade routes it has the sewers
0: and the bosphorus geopolitical choke points istanbul the bosphorus is the canal just for people listening the bosphorus is that canal that is uh is controlled basically by istanbul
1: yeah yeah and so whoever con- the, the theory was that whoever controls that controls the world mm-hmm. and if you lose that you lose control of the world and so the the strategy was one of two things either you control it and if you cannot control it fully and completely you ensure that no other party ever can And this explains why, for decades and decades, the US has been funding um, military conflicts in the Middle East on both sides. It's why they funded Al-Qaeda against the the Russians, and then they fought Al-Qaeda. It's why they funded ISIS against Syria, and then fought against them. It's why they've constantly been meddling in order to create conflict, such that none of those particular um, political um, or ethnic groups in that region could have ever come together and form some level of economic or political alliances that could um, threaten the the West Segemony. So what's interesting now is if you look at what's just happened literally this year, and it's been slowly moving in this fashion, is that, well, actually, let's go back a second. Let's go back to the withdrawal of the US from Afghanistan. And when that took place, I remember writing about it and mentioning that there were two countries in the world that will be extremely, extremely worried about what just took place. And those two countries are Saudi Arabia and Taiwan. And the reason for that is quite simple. They owe their existence to the U.S. military. And what the U.S. military just did was show that they're probably not the most reliable partner, shall we say. And it was... Um, Not a coincidence that two weeks after the um, the Afghanistan withdrawal, Saudi Arabia went inside a military deal with Russia, and that is just exacerbated and continued anyways, so they needed to have a um, another military partner, their economic partner, and, and by the way, economics always drives almost always drives and gives you probability of outcomes when you think about political um, alliances. If you look at trade flows, trade flows will almost always show you what will then become on the news, oh, so-and-so has a new alliance with X, Y, Z, right? Whether it be um, stated economic alliances or even um, military alliances. Your trade flows always precede that. That's why I've been writing about, for example, Trade flows between Russia and Turkey, which for the last four, six years have been the highest. That's those two countries have been, they've had the
0: greatest net increase in trade flows. And so- Chris, can you, can you just, I want to pause right there for a moment, because I think when people hear about trade flows, and I'm one of them, I I, I get confused between trade flows between uh, entities, the government controls and then trade flows between free market participants right so if i'm yeah. a business in turkey let's say no matter what the government is doing i'm just going to basically do business with whoever is going to pay me the most money wherever the demand is mm-hmm. so if i'm able to do business with the us great i'm going to sell to the us if i'm gonna, if i've got customers in russia great i'm going to sell to them as well i'm going to sell to wherever the demand's coming from but with this it's a little different because if you've got uh, Saudi Arabian oil, it's more controlled by the government, so they can determine okay who are we going to sell to and who are we aren't, who are we not going to sell to. So it's it's not like if there's a and correct me if I'm wrong, but if there's like a trade deal directly between uh, Saudi Arabia and China, it's not like every single business within China and within Saudi Arabia is now just going to do business with whomever the government says they're still going to want to do business with whomever's buying the product it's just more so those entities that are controlled by the government is that correct or am i wrong there yeah so look like anything there's a lot of nuance to it
1: so there are some countries which have a greater level of to say political control in their economies than others right Uh, and so hence where you have trade flows they will be often influenced by government's um, thinking and policy and so on and so forth countries which have less of that sort of impact will as you correctly mentioned will be more free to say hey i'm going to go and deal with these guys because i can get a better deal or whatever the case might be right what i've noticed is that it basically doesn't matter where you have the levels of those flows increase or decrease to a material relatively material um, uh, amounts, mm-hmm. it's your probability of outcomes from those trade flows yeah, are yeah. that you will have um, alliances. It, look, it's, it's like business, right? If you, if you and I did some particular uh, business in Rebel Capitalist and it really worked like it was material in the business, maybe it was 15, 25, 30 percent more profitability, whatever it is, the odds are we're going to do more of it. And if we did something that decreased by 20%, we'd be like, okay, we'll do less of that. Right. Um, And so whether it's directed from government or whether it's from um, the private sector, um, what I've noticed is that your probability of outcomes in terms of those types of alliances and military deals, et cetera, et cetera, um, typically follow that. Look, If you think about human behavior and psychology, that's, it makes sense, even if you're a policymaker at the government, unless you're completely ideologically, you know, on one, one, one sort of avenue. And certainly that can and often is the case, unless you're like that and you simply are trying to um, look at the look at what's in front of you, where you see a whole lot of trade taking place, you will by nature start looking at that and say, Well, how can often how can we meddle or how can we make it better? Or how can I how can I elevate my position? What you can remember is most people are actually self-driven whether it be your governors or your uh, whoever in mm-hmm. these political parties they are self-driven um and so <clears throat> it's easier to go with the it's, go, it's easier to go with the flows you know what what you've seen is like with saudi arabia the main trading partner now is china by the way the same thing is now true between china and taiwan um if you go back to know 20 30 years ago that wasn't the case so in many respects china doesn't actually need to do anything to take taiwan they all they have to do is just sit and wait because the trade flows will will increasingly make taiwan dependent on china right in, in terms of trade such that they will have the ability to influence them via shall we say more diplomatic financial incentivized means, whereby the populace will go, yeah, but, you know, I've got my business running. And when we sell it all to the Chinese and it's good, and that's much easier than coming in with bloody B-52 bombers and everything else. That's chaos. That's a mess. And isn't and that know, normally their style,
0: Chris, sort as as totally. of the Chinese, that they don't really like getting in that kinetic war. They like to sit back and say, Let, let's maneuver around this and let's just try to wear down our M- enemy maybe financially to the point where we don't have to go to war and, um, and we'll just do all these other k- kind of things. It's, it's not,
1: it's much more subtle. It's much more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's much more. Well said. It's not overt. It's not overt. That's right. Yeah.
1: And in fact, um, but, but it also it's important also to understand that it's not necessarily that it's, um, it's not aggressive, very, very aggressive, right but in, in different means right and so as an example when you've got all of the um the fentanyl coming in across the border into the U.S. from cartels there's a lot of yeah. Chinese influence and money behind that right 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 because it, like what better way to, to destroy your enemy than to let them eat themselves alive and simply just fuel it it's the same as the whole carbon debate right the Chinese love this idea that the world's going to decarbonize.
0: Yeah, because it Why? just weakens everybody.
1: Because it just weakens your economic opponents. And if they don't have the economic prowess to fight you, they don't have anything. They can stand up and yell and scream, but it's like once you've lost your economic prowess, you've lost it. It's yeah. done.
0: Europe's so, a great example, right? Yeah. Go so go build we'll those windmills. And then, you know, then let's see what happens in a couple of years. And you can <laughs> see
1: all of that that, you know, Asia is all paying lip service to this. The Middle East is all paying lip service to this. Russia is all playing. Russia is not even paying lip service to this. This um, save the planet by um, eliminating one element of the uh, atmosphere from it, which in itself is absurdity. But nevertheless, and so they all they all love the fact that the West is barreling down this path. Mm. Um, in fact, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if you found that. There were a bunch of ngos and various organizations that are being funded by the chinese communist party to help push this forward why wouldn't you it's a much much more efficient your return on on investment into from a military standpoint far exceeds that of an overt war where you put yourself in the headlights of hey we've just bombed you or we've just done xyz to you mm. much much efficient, more efficient so Back to what we're talking about with the Middle East. Um, there's a number of factors coming in, one of which is that the Middle East increasingly sees the United States as an um, economic and military partner that is um, untrustworthy and, um, you know, they stole Russian assets. That was one thing. They moved the military out of Afghanistan and left their own people on the ground to suffer consequences you look for a plan b <laughs> is what you do so we're seeing that forming but in, but what's important is that is the heartland right and they have they're losing that heartland at breakneck speed you have now china that's negotiated a peace deal between russia and um sorry between saudi and iran which is huge I mm-hmm. basically told them look guys you know, to sit down put your you know put your toys aside stop fighting so, you have Iran, Saudi, Russia, China. And the next one that's going to really fall into that bucket is Turkey. Turkey's just sitting on the sidelines. Um, they're already building gas hubs where they're delivering um, Russian gas and so on and so forth. But Turkey, being quote unquote part of NATO, um, has always been politically promiscuous, shall we say? And they receive billions every year from NATO. So, why would you give that up? unless you have to. So they'll keep playing the game until such a time whereby they'll be pressured to take sides and they'll have to make a decisive decision. Um, and I think it's obvious which way they're gonna go. Um, but that's that's a huge portion of your heartland. Um, and so the probabilities which I think come from that are that the US is gonna, or the West, the deep state, shall we say, needs a wall. They desperately need a war. They have to stop that formation of a political, military, economic alliance that has too great a power in the heartland.
0: And even if China wants to sit back and, and play the more strategic route, you think that the West needs not only a war, but a kinetic war. That's really there. The and they're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing until they get it. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, I think it's going to become more difficult for China to stay on the sidelines. They've now entered the fray in terms of economic alliances with uh, and, and overtly with Russia, right, right. Iran, Saudi. Um, and so when that economic alliance is then threatened, China's going to have to make a decision. How do they go about doing, like, what do you do? Um so
0: that's, 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 that's an interesting... So how how um, do you reconcile this? Well, first of all, how does that factor into your decision-making as to how you're setting up your portfolio and, and, and your long-term view? And then I want to try to figure out how you're reconciling that position with the information that we're getting from the yield curve. Good questions. Um, and,
1: and I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I'll give you what current level of thinking is. All wars are inflationary by nature.
0: Right, right.
1: Firstly and foremost, um, we are entering into this phase where we have the highest levels of debt that the world's ever seen, both in nominal as well as um, absolute terms. Ordinarily, you can only result you can only resolve those debts via <clears throat> inflating them away or having a debt reset, a debt jubilee of some description. I think that I think the latter is far more probable than the former, for the simple reason that there is we have reached such levels um, that that inflating it away is actually too long a time frame and and by I just think the numbers are too egregious at this point to actually inflate it away as has happened in the past. The other and and then there's a number of factors that we can see coming in where. You know in, in the introduction of central bank currency i think would be a perfect a perfect shall we say solution it's not a solution but that the the um, the globalists see it as a solution to soaking up all of the um the debt issuance rolling it up into one new great reset type of um monetary system and doing it all in one fell swoop Um, the the ability to push that through might coincide with some exogenous risk, i.e. threat from China, cyber attack, or or something of that description, which would take you into kinetic conflict. Um, And so we're seeing some of those um, types of narratives being discussed at length. And and this is not from conspiracy theorists. This is straight out of the IMF. Um, This is coming straight out of the United Nations. And least so-called think tanks, World Bank, IMF, United Nations—you name it. So, um, I think the probability is is worth considering. And then, as to portfolio, well, actually, you mentioned like yield curve. So, because I mean, yeah. we want to take
0: it back to commodities, and I know that you're very bullish long term on commodities for pretty much the reasons that we've been talking about—the the, the war and how it's inflationary and that's going to crush the supply side that's going to pretty much do the same types of things to the supply chains that we saw the government's response to COVID, right? I mean, back in 2020 and yeah. war pretty much does the exact same thing. And we know that that was extremely inflationary. So uh, you're, you're betting that that, regardless of what happens over the next six months or year, that over the next 10 years, we're going to progressively go down further and further and further down this path while at the same time, those global elite, are going to be doing everything in their power to crush the supply side while the demand stays very, very uh, consistent. And yeah. and that's kind of your argument there. So it's, 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 it's the global elite and what their agenda is. That's very bullish for commodities. And then this war and the U.S. kind of pushing the pedal to the metal and trying to get this kinetic war because that's what they think they need. That also is very bullish. And that's I think that's kind of the thrust of your argument for commodities, isn't it?
1: Well, there's a huge thrust of the argument for commodities simply is that cyclically we're at the lows and ordinarily okay. we should have started restocking and recapitalizing that entire uh, spectrum. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at coal, oil, copper, anything. Um, right, right. That hasn't happened nowhere near to the extent that it would in a, norm, in a normal cycle. There's a because couple of the ESG why. nonsense. It's ESG nonsense it's, and you know, what you got to the reason that commodity markets are so, are so fantastic is they're very cyclical because they're so capital intensive,
0: right? And therefore more predictable,
1: much more predictable. And they're also, so there's the ESG side of things, but another side of things that's, that, um, you need to consider is the, um, is that it's a debt financed industry, a new oil rig will cost you a billion dollars. Okay. You don't equity finance that, right? Right, right, right. And right. now you go well. What's happening? Okay, so firstly, you've got the ESG side of things, right? So even if you're a CEO who realizes you're like, holy shit, we're going to make a ton of money here. Well, Let's get another couple of dr- drill rigs out. You've got shareholders who, for the last ten years, have just been smashed. Mm. All they've all they've seen is pain, right? So they're not they they're pretty risk averse now. Okay, you can show them all the projections and all the numbers that your 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 day rates and everything are climbing, but they're still like, yeah, that's just mentally the framework we're in. Now you couple that with ESG, where you might go and you spend your billion dollars, and some government enterprise or or um, politician says, no, nah, we're pulling leases or we're doing whatever, and and right. your whole. Modeling and planning goes out the window. So that's another risk that you have to try and factor in. And it's not one that we've had before. And hence, you can't go back in history and go, this is what it normally looks like. We yeah. don't know. And, and maybe about. even
0: less dollar liquidity because of a fragile banking system. <laughs>
1: and that. And then you take finance rates, which are climbing. Right, So mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're running this thing and you know that often these things have got a 20, 30 year ta- um, payback. So you go, okay, I'm going to debt finance it for, say, 20 years. What are rates going to be in 10 years, 5 years, 20 years? You have to start extrapolating out what that looks like. And hence, what is the underlying price that you need of the commodity? And what are the risks of politicians? And, 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 and. And and, And and,
0: and please explain the cyclicality of not only commodities, but the cyclicality of of interest rates. Because you're talking about interest interest, rates 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. People need to understand that interest rates themselves usually run in 30 or 40 year cycles
1: yep credit markets are 30-year cycle mm. we like we have so many things lining up that are so extraordinarily bullish for 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 these capital intensive industries to not be putting more in, more um, capital in that's bullish for the underlying price because it is productivity destruction and it is supply destruction at a scale that we've not seen before right? Right. Okay, so we need to consider that with respect to things like the yield curve and the pricing in a recession and demand destruction, and so on and so forth. We could have de- demand destruction. Look, let's just say your supply destruction is twenty percent. Demand destruction is twelve. What happens? It's bullish.
0: Right? Yeah. So you know, as you're sitting there talking, Chris, the other thing that I'm thinking about is I actually just got off a call with uh, our, our buddy Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, as a private call, I was just explaining to him kind of the the methodology behind the yield curve and uh, and other things like that, and Fed funds and unemployment and and one of the 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 main you know points of discussion there because you know I kind of went through this little presentation, made sure that he understood everything that's going on, and he's and he says, okay, well, my question is when the stuff does hit the fan because that usually happens after. The curve is no longer inverted yeah. he's like well, know. what what what's what is the crisis going to be what is the yield curve predicting and i said you never know that uh, we don't know you <clears throat> never know what the crisis is going to be but you know that something's going to that tsunami's coming at you that's the only information that you have so right now we know that silicon valley bank signature credit suisse deutsche that's not the crisis No, that's just the beginning. That's the tip of the iceberg. That's just the first cracks in the dam. But I told Robert, I said, I I don't know. We, We don't know. So I guess my question is, and what I'm thinking about is, could the yield curve be predicting the war that you're talking about? So it's not predicting a recession because of a recession or a financial crisis or the commercial real estate market, but it's predicting an inflationary recession due to a kinetic war. And and that's what's on the horizon. And and that's what the smart money is betting on right now. Uh, Just like the smart money was betting on the the, the mortgage market collapsing or the housing market collapsing in 2006, like a year and a half before we even saw any cracks with Lehman or Bear Stearns. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks, and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level.
1: The way that I try and do this is you've got multiple things going on. So it's almost like I just have whiteboards and I, I draw out like you can isolate things. You can talk about yield curve and go, okay, what does that mean? What does our historical precedence give us, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Then we can talk like, so you you build all of these different models almost mm-hmm. of, of things that you see going on and then you got to go, okay, well, what are the probabilities? And how do these all mesh together and do right, they even right. mesh together? And how does one impact the other and so on and so forth? Um, and then the other thing that I do, which I think is probably an investor's biggest, um, biggest net benefit that they have, especially individual investors and not asset managers, is I take a long time frame. I step right back and I go, okay, I don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. Um, I don't know what the Fed's going to do. I don't know what the consumer price index is going to look like i don't know necessarily what the ppi is going to come in at or you know all these various things and largely when you go back typically there's just noise they help And, and and i say i say that not because you shouldn't pay attention to them but you should pay attention to them within context right and you know unless you're a trader if you're a trader fine they're very important but in, in the large game, game and scheme of things, they don't really matter that much. What's the most probable outcome over, like, at least a five year time frame? Mm-hmm,
0: yeah.
1: And I need to base my portfolio on that. I can, if I can figure out other things along the way and I can see some risk coming, I can adjust it accordingly. But I need to have like a solid ship, right, which is, which is going to last me five years out, because the things that are happening today, are the kind of things that happen every 100 years. You basically don't want to mess that up because it could be catastrophic. And I'm not saying that to try and be, you know, um, to scare people. That's just a historical precedent. That's where we're at. You've got a 30 year credit cycle. We've got the 100 odd 80 to 100 year war cycle. We've got um, uh, clearly we've got a debt crisis on our on our doorstep, a sovereign debt crisis. You we know, can't struggle, have a sovereign though. debt crisis without a monetary crisis. So, you know, all of these things are, you know, so that, let's just take that as an isolated event, sovereign debt crisis, morphing into a monetary crisis. Now, then let's look at a, um, a yield curve inversion and what we've just talked about, which is some demand destruction event on mm-hmm. the Usually, not too yeah. distant horizon. Mm-hmm. In the past, what would you have done? Well, you would have gone to cash or T-bills, mm. or even bonds, but now we've got a sovereign debt crisis. likes of which we've never seen before the two conflict you wouldn't go into bonds just looking at the sovereign debt crisis and you wouldn't go into cash even knowing that you're going to have a monetary crisis but you've got this this yield curve inversion you've got something coming we don't know what that something is what to do so i i bring it down to various you know i it's like deep value investing you go what is screamingly cheap where Mm. if I get it wrong I'm not going to get run over. Right. If I get it wrong, I might lose 20, 30 percent. But that's very different to going and buying the dot-coms at the top and just seeing a 90% washout. Um, and if it's things that are absolutely critical to human civilization, well that's a pretty good bet. And that's largely the the that's largely the commodities and in and in particular the energy market. Now Mm. If we do have some level of a kinetic or, or an increase in the, in the current kinetic war, that's energy. You cannot ever have political security without energy security. That's going to get fought over. And it's not even about aggregate supply, by the way, which we have insufficient number, level of. It's about your availability of that supply. It's about getting that supply. Remember, the 1970s oil crisis wasn't about supply. There was plenty supply in the world. It was that the Arabs wouldn't give it to us. It was that simple. So, you know, we're moving quickly into that sort of environment at the same time that we've had a massive lack of capital expenditure in um, in the energy space in particular. At the same time, that no one really wants to go and put their head on the chopping block because Biden and Ursula uh, von der Leyen and everyone else is telling us that you know, you can't go and um, and build all of this stuff because we're going to kill it by 2030 or 35 and there's not going right. to be any of it and so on and so forth. So it's just, it's a horrible environment for you to, to take that level of risk. So what do you do? Well, you're going to have to shift to more favorable jurisdictions if you're going to do it. And those more favorable jurisdictions, jurisdictions do not have the same functional credit markets. They don't currently have the same... Um, even legislature that allows for, you know, deep water exploration, all these sorts of things. There's, there's a whole incredibly complex chain work um, of, 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 of getting capital into, um, into these projects and, um, and ultimately getting it out of the ground. And remember, <laughs> this is also an industry which takes multi years. Like if you um, and I, we, if we went out and we,
0: yeah, even if you had the capital, it's not like you can just flip light Even if the
1: capital, even if the supply chains weren't impacted negatively at the moment. Um, and by the way, on that front, there's a huge issues with respect to, um, uh, human capital, mm, uh, um, right. I was just on the phone with, with, um, with a client yesterday who runs a very large asset, um, leasing company. Um, airline um, aircraft leasing and maintenance um, I think it's the world's biggest in any event, they are struggling massively to get engineers, <clears throat> guys yes. who come into fixed landing gears, things like that. A large part of that is they used to all come from Russia and ukraine. can't get them out now can't get them visas. Um, so you have these and and you think about a think about a i don't know big a330 um, very, very costly. Sitting on the ground because the landing gear is broken, and ordinarily you might have that fixed in two weeks, announced two months, maybe three months. This all impacts your cash flows. It impacts um, your um, ability to deploy capital. You know, it's 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 supply constraint. A lot of it's supply constraint. And that's just mm. the the um, aircraft industry. Um, at the same time, that demand's pushing up against that.
0: You know, so. Um, so when you're looking at the, the commodity space, and I want to let everyone know that uh, you're not only one of my business partners in Rebel Capitalist Pro, but you're actually going to be at Rebel Capitalist Live. Uh, the next one that we have coming in, uh, in May, uh, 12th to the 14th in Orlando. So, you know, guys, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you got to go to rebelcapitalistlive.com and grab them ASAP. You're going to be there with our other business partner, Lynn Alden. But when, when you're in Rebel Capitalist Pro, you're talking to a lot of the members about how you're specifically playing this commodity strategy, whether it's through producers. Uh, you talked about your favorite being the energy space, but I know that there's other commodities that you're uh, interested in that, that you may have on your watch list, even if you haven't uh, bought them yet. So getting down into the nitty-gritty understanding your, your macro view what do you like the best as far as that space? Or, you know, is it the producers because they're paying a dividend or is there too much risk there because you got management so you're just buying futures? Sure. Or how, how do you... How yeah. Do you like, yeah.
1: The first thing that, that I'd that. say is, um, and <clears throat> excuse me, first thing I'd say is that it's really important to try and build a portfolio. Think of things from a portfolio perspective. Right, right, as right. As opposed right, to right. just... Because the risk is I come out and I go, hey, I'm super bullish on X. And you know what? I might be wrong. Um, And you don't want to be overly weighted in one particular thing. That being said, um, and you'd know this, we were very bullish on coal two years back. We were buying stock out of coal. Coal Everyone
0: knows me because they hear me talk about that all the time. But I (laughs) want to be clear that I actually got that idea from you uh, back just, just when COVID hit. You and I were talking and talking about coal. And I bought a ton of it oh well that stupid etf that they dismantled but it went up a lot in price uh in the interim but yeah i got that idea from you
1: so coal i'm still we're still bullish on coal we still have positioning in coal but on a relative basis um when you look across the spectrum of what you can buy in the in the oil and gas space you've got producers you've got a whole lot of stuff the most asymmetric that we can find at this point in time are your offshore drillers by far and away um And these guys are currently printing money. Their their day rates are just going to keep climbing. Um, The whole offshore space has been almost like the dirtiest of the dirty within the oil space. It's been the most difficult to get into. Um, And and a big part of why it's so interesting is that there was absolute decimation um, from 2012 roughly through up until today in that space. Like, like 90% of the drillers went away. Mm. I mean, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, this either happens because the industry is going away and it's like a Kodak moment, right? (laughs) And we're going to digital photography. Yeah. Well, Um, or this is one of the best opportunities I've ever seen in my life. And we think it's the latter. So um. So that's, that that would be um, the one that I throw out there. Um, But then there's a lot of things going on. Like I said, build a a diversified portfolio. Um, If you look at gold, gold and gold equities, gold has been performing relatively well, gold equities haven't really done anything, Mm. right? And the time to buy things is when no one really, when people are bored with them and when they are not doing particularly well, and you've got to have that time frame. It, again, like I said, one of the best things that um, individual investors have in their kitty is the ability to have, um, sorry, is the ability to um, be patient. If you're an asset manager and you're running a lot of money, um, your LPs get pissed off if you haven't got made the money in the last six months and so on and so forth. This is why so many asset managers, even the, quote unquote, active managers land up benchmarking they'll land up going they land up moving their portfolios closer to the benchmark because the risk for them is far greater that they have a, have um redemptions than making money right you get redemptions you know if, if you if you underperform the market nobody forgives you and so they land up tracking the benchmark as an individual investor you don't have to worry about that I mean, in in our asset management business, we're very, very critical as to who we take in as clients, and we are adamant. This is how we do it. And if you don't Mm -hmm. like it, we're not for you. And if you don't like it, give us less money, not more, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can implement that sort of strategy. And it's always worked for us. Mm -hmm. But um, so when you take that longer term view and you realize that we're going to have a monetary crisis and a debt crisis, um, you want to own precious metals as well um people talk about bitcoin we were very long bitcoin for years we got out and and we haven't got back in and in large part as much as i ideologically like the idea of bitcoin and i think it's decent on a speculative basis Mm -hmm. i.e probably not more than five percent position weighting. Mm -hmm. um central banks don't buy bitcoin they buy gold and we have seen in the last what six eight months central banks have been buying more gold than in any time in history right. and it is central banks often um in the BRICS. so we are being forced into internationally we are being forced into a monetary war you know you have seen that with uh with the fed why does the fed keep raising it's a good question. Are they really fighting inflation? I don't think so. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think that's. I think that's just a. Um, that's an excuse. But largely, what they're managing to do is they're managing to suck a lot of capital into the US, mm. right? Um, which which they need. It's it's a it's a net beneficiary. On aggregate for the US and for the US capital markets to have a differential between yield, between um, US yield and European, Japanese, UK, you name it. And they have the ability to, to do that. So um that gives again, it's like you know, we got back to the beginning of this discussion. We we're talking about this financial war. And it's not just a financial war, for example, between the obvious, you know, Russia and maybe. The European Union or the United States, the West. No, even within you know, within the West, there is conflict. There are the multiple vying interests, bankers right. um, that are that are vying for profitability, for market share, and so on and so forth. Um, and if you look at what's, I mean with the Fed coming in now and backstopping the the big five, basically, banks in terms of depositors' money, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? If you and I were running a business and we had tens of millions of dollars across the world in multiple accounts, you know, maybe some in Europe, some in Hong Kong, some in Singapore, and now suddenly one of those, our US banking partners, are completely backed, Should we just maybe allocate a little bit more money towards them? I'd right. say we probably should. Seems like a smart risk management tool. It's like, hey George, let's just shift some over to Citibank because we don't have the risk there. <clears throat> and and the stuff can be done on a, you know, in 30 seconds on one of these.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's so, funny because most Americans, Chris, they think about that through the lens of the regional banks. I talk to so many people that are Americans and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving my money from XYZ Regional Bank to Bank of America or to Wells Fargo. So, that it, so we just look at it from a domestic standpoint, but you have to yeah. understand that global actors are in the exact same position and they're yeah, look, moving their money to VA and banks. JP Morgan as well. It destroys the
1: small banks domestically. It concentrates yeah. power in, in um, not surprisingly, the banks that own the Fed.
0: <laughs> yeah. And And, and doesn't it? And doesn't it? If you're increasing interest rates on dollars, even outside the United States, doesn't that put pressure on those entities that have that dollar-denominated debt? And therefore, that puts there's a higher probability that XYZ central bank needs to open up a swap line with the Fed to get that dollar liquidity, and then that gives all the leverage to the Fed. Exactly, and if the Fed decide that they don't want to give the swap the swap lines,
1: yeah, you're then like so politically you might be like oh no we want to do xyz and they're like well look i mean this is basically how the european union has functioned this is why 27 member states are all cowed down to ursula von der Leyen because the entire banking system
0: is run she's by the, the ecb guys just ursula she's yep. that whenever i say ursula that's who i'm talking about the gal with it's the it's ecb good. We'll just call it the devil, but yeah. Or I'm sorry, the, the EU, the EU. The, I'm sorry, the EU, the EU.
1: The EU. So, so and that's what, the, that's what they've managed to do, is they've managed to actually get that done, whereby you do not have independence of monetary policy in the EU anymore, in any of those member states. Right. You're controlled at a financial, financial level by Brussels. They can just cut off your banking system like that. Mm-hmm. Do you really think you're going to get re-elected? Even if you're doing what you think is and what is possibly the right thing for your citizens, if you cut off their dollar liquidity when you or if you cut forget about dollar liquidity, if you cut off their their, um, their credit lines within just thinking about the European banking system, they're done. Yeah. So, so take that as a mechanism and now take that as a whole and think about how the Fed are doing the same thing on an international basis. Sure, it's happening on a domestic basis. I'm not too worried about that on a domestic basis, your smaller small regional banks don't look as, as good as they would otherwise because, you know, we just discussed that. But on an international level, this is important because the same thing is taking place. It's not a, it's not a surprise to me that as soon as um, the little midget came out and said that, take a look at what happened to European bank stocks.
0: Who are you talking about, Yellen?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Immediately. It was the first thing I looked at that. I, I, I got up in the morning and looking at my… My feeds, I'm like, boom! I looked at that. I was like, okay, what's happening to European bank stocks? I pull them up. I'm like, there you go.
0: Mm.
1: So, <clears throat> um, yeah, um, it's in that environment you're, you're getting this this move, huge movements of capital around. That's um, that's huge volatility. In a volatile environment, you're just going to have to expect that your portfolio is going to experience volatility and and i think one of the biggest risks that you have here is that you get whipped out of a position or or um positions that you hold which are fundamentally sound because of huge volatility and remember volatility is not risk volatility can can be as a consequence of risk but in and of itself it's not risk think about Talking about offshore drillers, you got companies that used to be two billion dollar enterprise companies. Today they're two hundred million dollars. What's the volatility on that going to be? It's going to be much higher because your free float. So, two hundred million. Your risk company, is actually
0: lower. Sorry, but your risk is lower assuming you're getting the but same company for a better price.
1: You can have a two billion dollar company that's loaded to the to the eyeballs in debt, that's very marginal on on its um, uh, profitability. Mm. Right, at the tail end of a bull market in, in say drilling, where oil was trading a hundred bucks, and now this is the end, that's way more risky than a than a two hundred million dollar company, when oil's trading in close to a hundred. Right, it's got no debt. It's been restructured. I'm like, which is less risky, the two hundred million dollar company, but which is more volatile, the two hundred million dollar company. So volatility
0: is not always risk yeah and so, so how do you see this playing out with the dollar and, and, I'm t- and i'm not talking about domestic inflation which most people that that's one of the biggest mistakes i see people make is is they just they conflate uh the the, the value of the dollar relative to other currencies with the value of the dollar and domestic inflation or the value of the dollar compared to goods and services in, in the u.s and it's just you know they're two completely completely separate topics there but uh you know that's kind of the buzz is everyone's talking about the bricks setting up their own reserve currency to compete with the with the dollar and therefore you know we're gonna have hyperinflation and the, the dollar is going to res- lose reserve sta- status and whatnot and that's <clears throat> kind of the narrative right now
1: i don't buy that it's more complex than just that we've just talked about the banking system right and how that's um basically positive for the US, right? As destructive mm-hmm. as it is uh, both domestically to certain regional banks, as destructive as it might be <coughs> to foreign banks, um, that's actually a, um, it's a net positive for for the US in terms of capital flows. And then I see a lot of this stuff talking about, you know, Saudis now trading um, with, China and Yuan, Kenya just signed a deal to do the same, Russia's doing it, da, da 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 And people are going, well, that's the petrodollar. It's done. It's it means that the dollar's over. Why? If you take aggregate, okay, so global economies, what, about 85 trillion? No, no, Which no. Cheap, 104. 104, okay. I'm behind the curve.
0: Yeah, I just did a video on
1: it the other day. Um, oil markets are like about two trillion in change. It's 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 two percent. Maybe three. Even if it was five percent, five percent will have some impact, but it's, it's not the end. There's other there's other things going on that are um, equally or just as important. Um, now you think about glo- think about their global GDP. You've got the EU, which is deindustrializing at rapid speed. Okay. Um, what have you got there? You got to think, um, Europe's like t- 20, 20 trillion, something like that. I don't know Europe. I know that, the
0: US is about 25 trillion.
1: That, that there in and of itself is far bigger than the oil markets. So what happens in Europe is more important than the, than, than the energy markets, just in terms of global GDP. And what we're seeing there, as we just discussed, is a, is a movement of capital out of the EU to the US. Okay, and that's before we have a, 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 an elevated kinetic war. What happens if, if, they, if they have an elevated kinetic war in Europe? Where does that capital go? It's not going to Hong Kong. It's not going to China. It's certainly not going to Russia. It only
0: has one home it can go to, and that's the US. Now, if you have... so, But then I think most people on the live stream would say, okay, Chris, if all those dollars are coming back to the U.S., isn't that inflationary for domestic prices? Yes.
1: yeah, It's inflationary for domestic prices, but it's not negative for the dollar. So yeah. this idea that Against the dollar... Against other fiat currencies. ...go away. If anything, the dollar goes away by exploding upwards like a collapsing star. Yeah. I remember... It's, it's funny. I remember talking to Brent Johnson about this shit back in... 20 maybe 18 19,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and um, and I remember saying, oh, I think it's going to be like a collapsing star. And we laughed about the you know, that as an, as an analogy because it gets brighter and brighter and, and, um, yeah, yeah. and bigger as it yeah. collapses. <clears throat> and so, I think that's that's a more probable outcome just because these other factors outside of the dollar's dominance with respect to energy markets, um. Are, are more important, you know. If we, if the deindustrialization of Europe, and the, I, I'm relatively convinced that Europe is going to fragment and collapse, just as the just as the United States is struggling domestically, it's basically they've already divorced internally, you know, politically. Um, now it's just a matter of figuring out who the hell gets the silverware, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone's talking to their lawyers at the moment. They haven't yet sat down in court and, you know, nutted it out, but that's kind of the situation that it's at now. And you're seeing that, you know, with DeSantis coming out saying, we're not going to extradite, um, you took, there's a anti-CBTC bill in Florida and another one coming in Texas, all that's financial. It's, it's all of these things are all like, what's happening domestically in the United States is also happening in Europe at an increasing pace. It's fragmenting, it's falling apart. So, in that environment, um, <clears throat> where do you, if you're a Westerner, where do you seek safety? Yeah. Especially if you've got a kinetic wall, it's going to seek it in the dollar. It's it's just the way it is. You can't you can't seek it in Norwegian kroner or I mean, fine on an individual basis, people could, but large capital flows. If you're a sovereign wealth fund, if you're a big mutual fund manager, you can't
0: yeah and what people tend to forget is, is those entities outside the united states could care less about the inflation rate inside the united states that, that that's okay. a, not, because that's not their live their liabilities aren't dollars uh their liabilities are their local currency the turkish lira as an example the colombian peso yes. so if your liabilities are pesos and the dollar is appreciating in value or at least going to maintain its value against the colombian peso you could care less that the inflation rate in the U.S. is negative two or twenty percent. You're like, who cares? I'm not. I don't have dollar liabilities. I uh, just, problem. yeah, it's not my problem. As long as the dollar against my currency is staying consistent, and that's all I care about. You know, another story that I I tell people. I don't know if we've had the chance to talk since I went to Turkey, but I was very uh, inquisitive about the. You know, I had some tour guides and whatnot. I was trying to ask as many people as I could because of the high rates of inflation there, what they're doing to protect their purchasing power. Because I noticed uh, most things are still priced in lira and they were getting their paychecks in lira. And they said, basically what they do is they just take their paycheck, they buy whatever they need for the month and anything they have left over, they immediately turn it into one of three things, dollars, euros, gold. And- 90, you know, 80% of the people said dollars, just dollars, yeah. dollars, dollars. And even when I was in that airport, you know, it's spectacular, by the way. Uh, I noticed that when I went to the little coffee shop, uh, I just happened to be like right there. I wasn't trying to do this, but I was just right there when, the, when they opened the cash register. I am. And so you can see all the cash that they have. Yeah. 95% of their cash <laughs> in double. the cash register in Turkey, in Istanbul, in the airport was dollars. Yeah. And so that's, that's just uh, it's the world we live in. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, you're right. Here's another th- added thing. Look at the U.S. money supply. It's
0: collapsed. Yeah, so, well, that's, but sit, there you got to look at the nuance, though, Chris, because I've done a couple videos on that as well. And initially, you know, I was really stumped by that. I was like, why the hell is M2 going down? And so then I looked at the components of M1, because you know, obviously that's in, in M2. And I'm trying to figure out what is actually going down here because every single metric that I looked at that made up those numbers was actually going up. So I'm like, if, if deposits are going, uh, or if uh, checking deposits are going up, if this is going up, if that's going up, how the hell is M2 going down? And how is, and, and by the way, the metrics that make up M2 outside of M1 were going up as well. And I'm like, okay, so the, what it, the, the punchline is it was savings accounts. The money that people have in savings accounts, that was plummeting, absolutely plummeting if you go back a year. So that drawdown in savings uh, deposits was what created the drawdown in M1 and therefore the drawdown in M2. But you got to think about that. Okay, well, if one man's spending is another man's income, how is that not just circulating? Mm. Because you can't, you can't destroy M1. Unless it's a bank getting involved there, you know, buying from the private sector or selling or something like that. And so then I, I thought about it. And I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. Because this QE, this delta is so huge on savings account rates, you know, say 50 basis points to what you can get on a, a money market fund at, let's say, 4.5. Yeah. So what I, the conclusion I came to is that people are basically taking their savings and moving it into a money market fund. So that's decreasing M1 but it's not decreasing the assets on their balance sheet. It's just an asset swap or what they're doing is buying treasuries. That's going into the TGA. And then instead of that money being spent out back into the economy, to where it would increase M2 by the same amount that it decreased. It's going to pay off the fed when they were doing QT, when they're letting those bonds mature or other banks, Because banks right now are net sellers. So if they're getting paid back, then once that money goes out of the TGA, then it's no longer in the M2 money supply. So what you really got to look at there is you got to look at loan growth. So when you start to see like loans and leases, as an example, start to go down, then you know the decrease in M2 is actually decreasing purchasing power. It's decreasing the asset side of the balance sheet. But as long as M2 is going down while loans and leases are going up, then there's a high probability that it's, it's not decreasing the asset side. It's just an asset swap. It's just taking purchasing power out of M2 and putting it into reverse repo or putting it into the TGA.
1: Why do you think that's happening? Do you think that's just a risk-off move?
0: Uh, no. Well, I think it's because there's such a massive delta between, okay, so go back prior to the GFC. Oh, yeah, because the because yeah, you're, you're, you're getting, oh, this is probably why Yeah, so I, I did a, a video on this. I had this yeah. chart that showed what the average rate of interest you get on a savings account with a $100,000. And like in 2000, as an example, you were making six grand a year, six mm. grand a year. So you're getting 6% interest. And at the time, the headline CPI was like 3%. Yeah. So there was this huge, I mean, you were increasing your purchasing power significantly. But now we look at it and you're getting 50 basis points, Chris. And not with some of these regional banks, but like with the big players, you're getting 50 basis points when uh, Fed funds 5%. So there's a delta there of like 5% where you could just buy a T-bill or you could just go into a money market fund and basically get reverse repo. So there's never been that massive delta that would incentivize people to take those deposits out of the bank and move them into... Treasuries or money market funds.
1: It's interesting you say that, George. I hadn't even thought of that in terms of you think, look at those regional banks. Yeah. Man, they got headwinds from every angle at them now.
0: Yeah. Most people focus on the asset side of their balance sheet, but they got to focus on the liability side. And they just think that, oh, Peter Thiel sent out this tweet. So therefore, all the VC guys took their money out. Maybe, but maybe more like all those tech companies were burning cash because they're all just they all incinerate cash because they're not profitable so therefore their deposits were going back down mm-hmm. but in addition to that you know they had those CFOs at the tech companies that are saying same exact thing why am i got why do i have my money here when it's a yeah. liability of a commercial bank at 50 basis points when i could have it the liability of the fed at you know through a money market fund at uh, you know whatever 4.5 or 5 so again the i think the key component there what i'm looking at is loans and leases if that's going up then you know there's more currency units on net balance that are being created uh there then you just got to do a csi mission and figure out where those currency units are going assuming m2 is still going down but once that starts going down then you know that that decrease if we still see one is actually impacting the asset side of the the private sector's balance sheet and that's when it's really going to impact aggregate demand then you get a demand destruction Yep. 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 That's right. That's right. I wonder if we, if it's pricing that on a, what do we got?
1: Three, four months, maybe six months.
0: Yeah. So then you look at, okay, well, what would decrease loans and leases? Oh, well, how about fragility in the banking system? Hmm. You know, if if you got Silicon Valley bank, if you got Deutsche, you got Credit Suisse, you look at all of, of what we're seeing over the last few weeks, does that mean over the next two or three months, you think there's going to be more loans? (laughs) <laughs> or, or fewer loans, Yeah. yeah. You know, most likely more loans. And, you know, another thing too, that um, I was talking about in that video is, and you may have found this interesting, but the, uh, so the curve has been inverted as you know, but the curve for banks has been very steep because they're just borrowing short lending long, but they're not borrowing at fed funds. They're borrowing at their deposit rates. Yeah. So their deposit rates are 50 basis points. And the deposit rates are terrible. Yeah, so their deposit rates are nothing, basically. But then their lending, even at the 10-year treasury, that's a good spread. But historically, they would have already been bust because they'd be borrowing short, and that interest rate is higher than where they can, they can lend uh, you know, with a risk premium in there. So then the question becomes what makes them start competing for deposits again to where they'd have to increase those, pr- those uh, interest rates. And that, that's quantitative tightening or that's reserves going down into the TGA or down into the uh, reverse repo where those banks have to start competing for those reserves once again. So uh, one story that I think you'll find interesting is I was talking to some guys that are big players in commercial real estate last night. And uh, the commercial real estate, they get most of their liquidity from these regional banks. And so these guys literally have, have millions of dollars in these regional banks. And they said three or four months ago, they noticed that there, you know, there's some banks out there that were offering like maybe a two or 3% and their bank was still offering like 50 basis points. So they said, hey, you know, we, we, we love you guys. We've worked with you for a long time, but we need more interest here. And they said, basically pound sand. So they said, fine, we'll just take our money and go somewhere else. And they said that like a week ago, they got a call from the, the, that, those same bankers Begging them to come, come back, back at like a four point two five interest rate. Yeah, so, so they're
1: moving. Hmm. So
0: what? That that. They're, not only are they moving, but those regional banks are getting even further squeezed. And you can tell that by the fact that they're starving now for deposits because they're so willing to up to increase what they're paying people. But then think what that's doing to their profitability. It's destroying it because now that bank yield curve is flattening out, it. not inverting. Yeah. And their, their p and is going to get crushed. We're going to see a ton of M&A. Yeah, right, 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 right. We're going to see a ton of M&A.
1: And, um, you know, as Richard Werner, Professor Richard Werner has said so many times, the health of any economy is actually down to having small, um, very regionalized banking. Yeah, right. And if you look at what's happened in, in most of the Western world over the last 40 odd years, we've gone from having lots of small banks to having only a few big ones. Mm. And it's increasing and and now, you know, this, this what's just happened in the last um, couple of months with respect to Silicon Valley Bank and um, the Fed coming in backstopping, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, it's just, it's just accelerating that process. And so overall, that's very, very bad for the economy, it's very bad for the economy. Aside from the, any sort of dystopian views you might have on, um, you know. CBDCs and stuff. CBDCs and and a banking class that can um, inflict their will on on the citizens um, with with no you know no alternatives
0: uh, available to people. So, with your incredible framework that you've developed over literally decades of of managing large sums of money and and putting it to work and doing the research, um, what do you think the top three things are for people to be aware of? Or what are the top three things that should be on everyone's radar uh, moving into the summer of 2023 and then maybe even going into the end of 2023? I think it's much the same as it's been for the last few years. The trends in
1: motion that are now, the trends that are in motion are just now more evident than when you and I first started discussing them. Mm, Right. Um, I don't think anything's materially changed um we've we've moved further down the cycle there's been a number of things that have happened we've got more geopolitical tensions but we had them before right we still have supply constraints in multiple sectors we still have them we still have um a sovereign debt crisis to uh, visit us that's still coming we still have rising interest rates that you know so all of these things are just a little bit further down the track when we first started um talking um, much of the positions that we have are, are up multiple times, but mm-hmm. I, this, is a mul- this is a multi-year um, process. It's not a, it's not a, you know, people. So I think take a long. I think the, the most important thing that people can do is take a long-term view and take a take take a forty thousand foot view of things, right? And then build a portfolio based on that. Don't try and pretend that you're going to get everything right and that you're going to get your timing right and everything, because you're not. And there's going to be multiple things that we don't know that'll come along and knock you on your head. You know, we just discussed some event horizon in the next, call it six months, mm-hmm. or some somewhere on that time frame, where you know, post-yield curve inversion, we, something's coming. We don't know what that is. But the other thing is we don't know actually whether that's going to be deflationary, inflationary, stagflationary. Right. Um, we don't quite know what asset... You could, we can go and we can look at the 08 crisis. We could look at um, 2020. And, and we can gain some insights into what asset classes were affected there. But every time is a little bit different. So what I would say is, Don't try and think it's smarter than you are. Build a diversified portfolio of deep value assets. And um, and then you can sort of play around the edges. And with respect to that, just keep in mind that we have a number of things. We have geopolitical conflict, right? That's almost always um, very bullish for commodities, energy in particular. Okay. We have a monetary crisis on our doorstep. That's going to be very bullish for monetary metals. We have geopolitical tensions as well, which are which are creating a shift of capital globally. And so one of the most difficult parts of my job is to actually f- not just figuring out sectors. That feels pretty easy, but it's figuring out on a geopolitical basis where the sectors are going to benefit. You know, um, do you do you buy a coal company in Germany or do you buy a coal company in Indonesia as a very simple type of you know explanation
0: and the answer is probably
1: it's Indonesia. more
0: about it's, it's a different type of risk management with your portfolio it's a geopolitical type of risk management yeah. Yeah. more so than just the the typical fundamentals of the management so, team and balance sheet
1: and that's never we never really had to deal with that for the last yeah. for my career you've had little bits of it but nothing really
0: and then you overlay these these psychotic global elite and them trying to, you know, basically the Malthusian cult, trying yeah. to implement their objectives. So you've got the geopolitical risk, the Malthusian cult risk, and the monetary crisis risk. Those are probably the three things that sounds like yeah. you're most cognizant of. You're thinking about the most in terms of, you know, what the hell do you do with your portfolio?
1: Pretty much. That's yeah. it. Um, and, I, and I come down basically to
0: Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, right. All right, buddy. We've been going an hour and 15 minutes here. It's it's always great to talk to you. I enjoy our conversation so much. I just want to remind everyone that you're going to be at Rebel Capitalist Live uh, in Orlando. I can't wait to hear your presentation there. And I know you're going to be hanging out with everyone, drinking some beers on uh, Friday and Saturday night at the cocktail party <laughs> <And Someone visit laughs> mixing it up. up a bit. So Josh put the, uh, the link there, rebelcapitalistlive.com to get your tickets. But outside of that, where can people find out about your uh, research products and kind of what you do on Twitter and social media and kind of uh, content and how people can access your research? Sure. So
1: um, the publication we run, which is on capitalistexploits.at at um and then the asset management side of things is net. but you know and the, and the other thing i didn't mention which is nothing that we've said is advice etc cetera, etc cetera. My, my um compliance team keeps telling me i got to mention that because we're an okay. sec registered firm and all of that sort of stuff so basically ignore everything that we've said and uh <laughs> take but no, it'll um, yeah. it'll be great. It's going to be good to um, actually. That, that's yeah. our
0: that's our April Fools' joke, Chris. Everything that we just said, forget it. We don't believe any of it. <laughs> oh,
1: shit. What oh yeah, that's living. true. None of it's uh,
0: investment advice. We don't know your personal situation. Yada yada yada. This is just yeah. basically what we're doing for our own portfolios. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. All right, buddy. Have a good one, man. Yeah. Thanks. to so talking to you soon. All right, you
1: all the best.